Would you pray with me? Father, we are uh, grateful to, um, to be here um, as your children, as uh, ones who have been declared righteous, ones who are beneficiaries of you taking all of our sin, past, present, and future upon the cross. We're grateful, Lord Jesus, that you who knew no sin became our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And Father, I pray that um, as we um, look, take a glimpse into your righteousness, your perfect righteousness, God, I pray that we'd be reminded of the price that was paid for our sin and the call in our lives to live righteously. And God, I also pray that if there are those that you have brought here today that are striving in their own righteousness to, um, to earn standing or favor with you, God, that, um, that today would be the day that they acknowledge their sin and they acknowledge their hopelessness in try to at, trying to attain righteousness. And that by your grace, they would have faith for the forgiveness of their sins as a result of your death on the cross and your glorious resurrection. So God, I just pray that we'd be encouraged this side of the cross, and I also pray that, uh, that you would convict us and that you would um, spur us on to live righteously uh, for your glory and for the good of your people. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. It's good to see you. Good to be here. This uh, third service of the weekend, um, it came to my uh, attention that there's some families that are quarantining themselves because um, they want to be with relatives and whatnot. So I thought, well, that's a, that's a good idea. Um, I want to say right up front, um, I want to double down on Stephen's prayer request. If you would pray for us as pastors and leaders and staff team, we just got a lot to think through and pray, f- pray through for this next couple of weeks with this new level red that we're in we we're not anxious we trust that god's going to lead us as we desire to first and foremost glorify him secondly is to um, love you and um, thirdly to um, be subject to our governing authorities whoever they might be so we're continuing our series on the perfections of god and we've uh, titled it that we may know him there is no greater pleasure for a human being than to know god to know him um intimately, to not just know about him like some distant relative, but to really know and to experience his character. Recently, my dad sent me a picture of his grandparents, his grandfather and grandmother, and 10 of their 14 kids. The picture gave me a further glimpse into my family tree, and, uh, but I was left wondering, what was my great-grandma Hardy like? Like, she was sitting there um, with kind of a smile on her face, and there was actually a, uh, a picture of Jesus on the wall behind the 10 kids. And I know they were a Catholic family, but I, have no, I really don't know what their faith was like. But it left me wondering, what was Grandma Hardy like? And I can learn a lot about her by asking my dad questions, but I will really never truly know her. I'll never get to experience her kindness or her steadfastness or her love or her sorrow or her toughness, or her cooking. I'll never get to experience those things. Our God is very much alive. And he is relational 
and he's knowable. You see, knowing and experiencing the living, resurrected God is the essence of eternal life. In the high priestly prayer, Pat reminded us last week that Jesus prayed these words in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, the more that we know God, the more natural it becomes to trust Him and to glorify Him and to enjoy Him. The closer we look at His perfections, the more that we will glorify Him and enjoy Him. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, 8, the psalmist encourages us to taste and see that the Lord is good. The more that we know of Him, the more that we taste of Him, the more that we see that He is good and He is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said this, God is a person and can be known in increasing degrees of intimate acquaintance as we prepare our hearts for the wonder. This sermon, um, and really this series, in many ways, was, um, was born out of the knowledge of the holy, A.W. Tozer. He's a man, um, but if you're looking for a book to read that will just minister to your heart and remind you of the perfections of God and to cause you to live your life uh, in, in submission to him, um, pick that book up. It's in, the, it's in the bookstore, and we've marked it up uh, three or four times uh, for um, my benefit. No, we didn't. It's at cost. It's out there. It's an amazing book. The more that we know of the perfections of God, the more we will be moved towards righteous, joyful, and sacrificial living for the glory of God. A.W. Tozer also said this, As the knowledge of God becomes more wonderful greater service to our fellow men will become, for us, imperative. The blessed knowledge is not given to be enjoyed selfishly. The end isn't just knowing God. The more perfectly we know God, the more we feel the desire to translate the newfound knowledge into deeds of mercy towards suffering humanity. The God who gave all to us will continue to give all through us as we come to know him better. Last week, Pat expounded upon the perfect goodness of God. He made a biblical case that God's goodness is seen both in creation and in salvation. It was super good for my soul to hear, and if you've not, if you miss it, I'd encourage you to tune in. In creation, Pat said, that he said, we see everything that God made was very good. We see that in Genesis, that God pronounced everything he made as good. And Pat challenged us to look around and to see all the goodness. Like, it's so easy right now, especially, to see things that don't feel good, that don't look good, the things going in, in our, maybe in our home and our, or our family, um, certainly our government and the pandemic and all that. But look around and see all the beauty, all the goodness of creation. And people in particular, Pat said that he made the very good point that the highest expression of God's goodness is you and I. It's human beings. Then he went on to say, Pat went on to say that that God's goodness is seen most clearly in salvation. He said that there's more goodness in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but what? 
have eternal life. There's more goodness in John 3.16 than there is in all of creation. Today we're going to examine the righteousness of God. And it's an impossible task, quite frankly, to unpack God's righteousness in 35 minutes. But we're going to do our best. So in order to know the perfect goodness and the, and the fullness of God's goodness, we need to understand the perfect righteousness of God. And we need to understand the utter unrighteousness of humanity. So today we're going to survey the various dimensions of God's perfect righteousness and His perfect demands. And we're going to do it in five sections. Um, number one, God is righteous in Himself. Two, God demands righteousness. Three, God provides righteousness. Number four, God empowers righteous living. And number five, God's ways are always righteous. This study on God's righteousness has been a profound reminder and encouragement to me that God is holding it all together. That He saves us, He sustains us, and He empowers us towards righteous living for His glory. I've also been reminded that His ways are always good and right, even when I don't get it. Even when it doesn't feel good and right. A deeper understanding of the righteousness of God has spurred me on to love Him more, to love others more than myself, and it's given me an increasing resolve to want to glorify Him with everything I do and through everything that I possess. My prayer is that you'll be spurred on in similar ways this morning. Number one, God is righteous in Himself. What is righteousness? To be righteous is to be morally right or justifiable. The righteousness of God is a divine perfection or attribute, if you will, that describes God as acting always in a way that is consistent with his own character. He always acts righteously in all that he does. Always acts righteously in everything he does. It's God's own nature that determines right and wrong. And when Scripture affirms that God is righteous, it assures that He always acts in a way that is consistent with His own perfection. God in His own perfection is the essence and standard of what is right. Justice is derived from the same word as righteousness. So when we say God is righteous, we're saying that He's also, what, just. A.W. Tozer, again, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, describes God's justice as a name we give to the way God is, nothing more. And when God acts justly, he's not doing so to conform to an independent criterion, but simply acting like himself in any given situation. As gold is an element in itself and can never change nor compromise, but it's gold wherever it's found, so God is God, always, only, fully God, and can never be any other, other than He is. Everything in the universe is good to the, to the degree, excuse me, that it conforms to the nature of God, and evil as it fails to do so. God is His own self-existent principle of moral equity. And when He sentences evil men, or rewards the righteous, He simply acts like Himself from within, uninfluenced by anything that is not himself. So I'll say it again. God is the standard of right and wrong. He is inherently righteous. He is perfect in every way. There's no blemish. He makes no mistakes. This truth about God is massive. 
It's one thing to know that God is sovereign and therefore he rules the world by his own will. will. Like we throw that around a lot. And it's true that God is sovereign. It helps us trust God. But without knowing that he's righteous and that he's good, he could be a sovereign tyrant. He could work out his good will and purpose. But he is good and he's right. It's good to know that he rules in righteousness. And for all the apparent inequities and injustices of life, for all that the wicked seem to get away with in this world, and for all the affliction that fall upon the innocent, it's critical that we know and trust that God is just and he will always do what's right. It's also important to know that he's the judge of the world. But more importantly, we need to understand that he judges according to what is right and in a way that is consistent with himself. He will not condemn the innocent, and he will not clear the guilty. When Abraham was pleading with God for the righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, he appealed to God's justice. He said this in Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The perfect righteousness of God is not a guarantee that all wrongs will be righted today. There's people that get away with wickedness. There's people who are innocent that are uh, being treated poorly. The perfect righteousness of God is, though, a guarantee that all wrongs will one day be righted. God is a perfectly righteous judge, and one day he will right all wrongs, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. God will always do what is righteous and just. It's his nature. Number two, God demands righteousness. He demands it. Because God is himself righteous, he requires the same of you and I. He requires the same of every human being. The Puritan minister Thomas Manton refers to this as God's legislative righteousness. God is the lawgiver. God is the one who imposes laws and determines right from wrong. And he legislates that law accordingly. The psalmist said in, in Psalm eleven seven, the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. He also hates unrighteousness. He loves our righteous deeds. The one who performs righteous deeds lives up to expected obligations. The one who performs righteous deeds acts in accordance to what should be done. A righteous person is one who is right and one who maintains a right relationship what is expected. We can say that we live in a righteous way in, in accordance to the law when we don't break the law when we don't speed, when we don't steal. Let's break this down a little bit further. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If this truly should be our aim, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, and, I, and, and every page of the Bible points us to that, how shall we glorify God? If our chief aim is to glorify God, how do we do that? What does glorifying God look like? It's simply, not easily, but simply, 
to conform to God's righteous standard. Living in accordance to God's righteous commands and doing righteous deeds. But we've got a problem, don't we? We've got a problem. And the problem is, is that human nature is not righteous. An unregenerated man cannot live righteously. Romans 3, chapter, uh, verses 10 through 12 and verse 23 says this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one. No one is righteous, and in, in our unrighteousness, God is not glorified. And this is a problem. It's the problem for all humanity. Being perfectly righteous, God must punish all unrighteousness, and all of humanity is unrighteous. He is good and perfect in his judgment of unrighteousness. This sometimes is called retribution. And there's a word that I'm going to say here in a minute that I have not been able to pronounce for two straight services. I practiced it last night. I practiced it this morning. And so you're just going to have to bear with me. I might have to spell it. First of all, his good and perfect judgment or punishment of unrighteousness is, is called retribution. Or it's called God's, here it is, Retributive, retributive <laughs> righteousness. It's tough. God didn't make my tongue to work that way. And God's retributive righteousness is that aspect, and I want you to catch this in spite of my, my mispronunciation. This righteousness that deserves punishment is the aspect of his nature which must punish humans for our unrighteousness and our failure to conform to his righteousness. This aspect of God's righteousness was first expressed in the garden. In the day that you eat of it, what? I'll just, I'll just give you, I'll just let you go. You will die. And if he were to allow sinners to continue unpunished, he would himself fall short of perfection. The notion of divine retribution against those who transgress his righteous demands is a familiar one in the Bible, in the garden, as I just mentioned. To the flood, to Babel, to Sodom and Gomorrah, to Egypt, to the Canaanites, to captivity, to Ananias and Sapphira. This threat has proven to be real. But there's a problem, another problem. That there may not be retribution in this life. That all wickedness may not be punished in this life. And the innocent actually may be punished unjustly. But God's retributive righteousness finds its final expression in the eternal punishment of the unrighteous in hell. And when I'm, I'm getting to a place where it is amazingly good news for you and I. But for anybody that has yet to put their faith and trust in Jesus, it's the worst news that you could ever imagine. And the false hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly lie for millions of peoples over the years. 
It masks their fears and allows them to practice unrighteousness while death draws near and the command to repent goes unregarded. God is righteous and just to condemn and punish the unrighteous. It's a hard truth, but he wouldn't be good if there wasn't retribution. The truth of God's righteousness is a frightening one for unrepentant sinners. But when this righteous retribution is wedded to his grace, there's no better news. Number three, God provides righteousness. Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Aren't you glad the story didn't end there? Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the beauty of the gospel. God has not and cannot set aside his just demands for righteous living. He sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And you go, well, like, do I need to know that word? Well, I think you should know that word. It's an amazing word. If you're looking for, um, like, something to put on your kitchen wall or in your bedroom or some of you want to get a tattoo, it's a, good word, it's a good word to do that with. Here's what it means. A propitiation is a satisfactory sacrifice that he put forth Jesus as a propitiation to satisfy God's righteous wrath. And this, this propitiation needed to be perfect in every way. It needed to take the sins of humanity. Jesus, the sinless one, not only stood condemned in our place as a punishment bearer, he also stood in our place as our law keeper because he did not sin. Jesus not only died the death that we should have died, he also lived the life that we should have lived. And of course, we see that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He was perfect. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This transaction has been described as a great exchange. Christ taking our sin and giving us his righteousness. He was made sin for us and he became to us righteousness. By grace, through faith, our record of sin became his. And so he died under the righteous wrath that was due us. By grace, through faith, his righteous record became ours, and we were justified. Let me explain it in another way. Jesus Christ endured the punishment deserved by fallen humans by becoming guilty in our place. We were guilty. He took on our guilt. Because of Christ's work on the cross, God has shifted our legal standing. If you know Jesus Christ, your legal standing before the great exchange was unrighteous and guilty. And now your legal standing is righteous, innocent. You're no longer on death row. This is called justice. The just penalty for sin was paid when Christ our substitute died for us on the cross. We also know this is justification, another big word that's important to know. 
John Piper describes justification as this, as an act of God by which he declares us to be just or righteous or perfect because by faith alone we've been united to Jesus Christ who is perfect, who is just, who is righteous. So justification is a legal standing before God owing to a spiritual union with Jesus which is owing to faith alone. You don't work yourself into or perform your way into standing with God. He declares you to be perfect because of your union with Christ, and that happens to be by faith alone. The author of Hebrews, speaking of Jesus the high priest, says this in chapter 10, verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In the cross of Christ, the demands of God's righteousness are fully met, and in our substitute, we are righteously forgiven. God is both just and he's the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. J.I. Packer explains it this way. Redeeming love and retributive justice joined together, so to speak, at Calvary. For there God showed himself to be just. He had to punish sin. And the justifier of him, you and I, that have faith in Jesus. In the cross of Christ, then both the saving and the judging righteousness of God are revealed. So here's a question. How do you know that you've been perfected? How do you know that, you, uh, that Christ took all your sin and that you have been given his righteousness? I know it sounds rhetorical, but the answer can be uh, found in Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected or declared righteous for all time. Who? Those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified. How do you know? You know because you're being sanctified. And sanctification, the evidence of sanctification in your own life is that you have a growing desire to live in accordance to who you already are, righteous. You have a growing desire. There's a trajectory. There's a direction. That brings us to number four. God empowers righteous living. Sanctification is a growing desire and trajectory towards righteous living, empowered by the Spirit's work in us. While justification is instantaneous and it's complete, it's a transaction that happens once, sanctification is progressive and is perfecting by degrees. Piper says, sanctification is the act of God by which he, through his spirit and his word, is conforming you little by little, or in big steps, he says, into the image of his son. So we are really becoming, in our behavior, righteous, really overcoming perfections in our sanctification. So the evidence that we stand perfected in Christ is that we'll have an ever-increasing appetite for that which pleases God and a growing distaste for that which does not please him. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? Do you have an ever-increasing appetite for what pleases God and a disdain, a growing disdain for that which does not please Him? A growing disdain for sin and an increasing desire to strive to overcome the perfections that still exist in our flesh. And be careful here because we're all in process. It's about a direction. I've said this many, many times over the years. It's about a direction. It's not about perfection. 
And what I mean by that is it's a direction informed by the perfected righteousness in us. And our living a righteous life, it just doesn't happen in one moment. It happens in increasing and progressive degrees. But if you don't have a growing disdain for sin and a growing desire to conform to Christ's righteousness, um, at the very minimum, you, you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Or just ask God to, like, God, like, would you, like, um, would you convict me? Would you give me an increasing desire for those things? 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we, that we might die to sin and what? Live to righteousness. Christ's righteousness in us has changed our very nature and it has changed our life. God's imputed righteousness will always progressively beget righteous living. It's not simply a change of status, but a change in direction in the way we live our lives. And this is not always easy. But it necessarily involves making other people's problems our own. Like you're looking for the bullseye of what it looks like to live righteously. It's, it's taking on other people's problems as our own. Jesus did that. Jesus um, left the, the, um, all that he enjoyed in the heavenly and came into our mess to take on our problem, which was sin. He who knew no sin became our sin that we might become the righteousness of Christ. The heart of it is of righteous living is loving others more than we love ourselves. Biblical justice or biblical righteousness is after all a reminder to love as Christ loved. Listen to God's words to Abraham in Genesis 18, 19. For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him. Who are Abraham's children and household? Galatians says it's us by faith. For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How do we keep the way of the Lord? By doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Micah 6.8 says something similar. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, live righteously, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. You see, brothers and sisters, when we come to Christ, our very nature changes. We became the righteousness of Christ, and because of that imputed righteousness, we then spend a lifetime, don't miss this, becoming who we already are. That's sanctification. Because you are already more righteous. You've been perfected. All of your sin has been taken care of. And the evidence of that is that we have a growing desire to fit into the robe that Christ has given us. To become who we already are. So let me close with this. The various dimensions of God's perfect righteousness And his perfect demands are as follows. God is righteous in himself. 
He can't tolerate and must punish sin. That's his nature. He would not be good or perfect if he just winked at it. Number two, he demands righteousness. Those two go together. Number three, he provides it for us. By grace through faith. It's the best news you can hear all week. We're saved by grace through faith. And number four, the second best news you can hear all week is that he empowers righteous living. You don't have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps every day. You say, God, would you help me? Would you give me a deeper um, hate for my sin? Would you give me a deeper resolve to live righteously for your glory? God, would you help me? And finally, number five, God's ways are always righteous. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that today. There's a lot going on that doesn't feel righteous, but we know that there's a righteous God who is on his throne. He's working out his goodwill and purpose. Even if we don't get it, Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. His ways are always right and just. He's always, he always has uh, good in mind for you, his children. He is always working things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So know, know that whatever you are going through in your personal life, things that you're wrestling with, whether it be at work, in your relationships, things you're bothered with, um, um, in, in all this going on around us. Know that it is all a result of His sovereign righteousness. That He's in control and His ways are always good. And here's this response. God, in the midst of this, in the midst of what seems to be unrighteousness, knowing that you are a, uh, a righteous sovereign, how can I bring you glory in my response? And how do you want me to respond? For your glory and for my good. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are good. You are so good. And you are greatly to be praised. And Lord, what a glorious truth that in our unrighteousness, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, no pulse, by your mercy, Lord Jesus, you left the heavenlies. You emptied yourself. And you dove into our mess. And being tempted in every way as we are, you did not sin. And you willingly set yourself towards Jerusalem where you knew that the Father would turn his face from you and that you would bear the sin of all of humanity who would put their faith in your sacrifice. And you drank 
the cup of wrath from the Father dry so that there's not a drop left for us, your children. You died for us. And you victoriously rose again from the dead. And now you sit at the right hand of the Father. We thank you that we've been sealed with your Spirit who convicts us of sin and righteousness, who empowers us to live righteously for your glory and for our good. So God, I pray that you would continue the work that you promised in each of us. Help us to um, live righteously as we are already righteous. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.